Leanna mentioned to you that uh, today's my birthday, and uh, so I'm already getting some greetings from various friends and family, and I, but I received one that was rather odd. Um, I, um, so far, and I think I may be the only one in the room, I've managed to avoid getting COVID, um, but I have not avoided catching the COVID-15. So I've been weighing myself each morning. I've got one of those fancy scales that connects up to Wi-Fi and goes to my app so I can track my weight over time and, and all of that. And so I got on there today, and uh, after I saw the weight, which was not a, a gift, um, <laughs> it said, happy birthday. And these little fireworks went off on the little screen, which was very disconcerting, uh, to, be, to be real honest with it. And then I remembered I had set this thing up with a profile and all of that. And, and I also remembered when I set up the profile, it gave me the option of automatically posting the results to social media. And I thought, what genius thought anyone would want that feature, right? It's like, here's my Wordle score. Oh, and I've gained five pounds. Just thought everyone should know. So, but I was actually really happy when John asked me to preach on this date. And I saw that it was going to be my birthday because it really is a gift to be able to, to do this. And this church has really been a gift to me uh, and my family. And I know I say this every time I preach, but the passage today is one of my favorite stories in the entire Bible. It's got some wonderful themes in it. Uh, the main part of it is this group of men who have a friend who desperately needs Jesus, and they care for him, and they love him, and they bring him to Jesus. And then there's a healing that goes on in the presence of Jesus, which is wonderful. There's this interesting tension between kind of the old way of doing things and the new way that Jesus is introducing. And it's got vandalism, too. So that's, uh, that's pretty cool. It's kind of got everything in the story at one time. But there's one aspect to the story that's always bugged me, and I've always just kind of glossed over it. I haven't really paid attention to it. And this time, I really grappled with that. So we're going to see what we can learn from that part of the story that I really don't like. Before we get into the passage, let's pray. God, we are really grateful for this day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for everybody involved in the service, the worship team, the, the people that are running the sound and the video and the slides and the greeters and just everything that goes into this service and all the behind-the-scenes stuff, too, that the church staff does. We're grateful to be here today. We're grateful to be your people and now we just ask that as we look into your truth, that your spirit would guide this, this morning. And uh, most importantly, that, that your truth would, would transform us into the people that you call us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage is found in the second chapter of Mark. It's verses 1 through 12, and it says this. When he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. They're talking about Jesus. So many gathered around that there was no longer room for them, not even in front of the door. And he was speaking the word to them. Then some people came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. And when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins 
but God alone. At once, Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were discussing these questions among themselves, and he said to them, why do you raise such questions in your hearts? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, stand up, take up your mat, and walk? But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, stand up, take your mat, and go to your home. And he stood up and immediately took the mat and went out before all of them so that they were all amazed and glorifying God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. I would love to know some more details about the backstory of this man. Because see, it was a common belief at this time that if you had some kind of a serious illness or a disability, it was a punishment from God. It was either a, a punishment against you or a punishment against your parents if it was something that you were born with. And those people tended to be kind of pariahs in the community. They would sit by the city gates and just beg because they couldn't work and they didn't have anybody to take care of them. So why did this man have such great friends that they were willing to help him out like this. And let's face it, these were great friends, right? These are the friends we want to have. These are the kind of friends that we should aspire to be. We don't know the answers to that, and it, it, it may sound out also that they were able to so easily tear through the roof and be able to get the man down in front of Jesus. But the, the archaeologists tell us that the, the homes in Capernaum were built with these rock walls, and then they had wooden beams across, and they would put thatch between the beams, and then um, dirt and clay they would pack in there really tightly, um, and that would be the roof. And it was pretty sturdy, um, but not that difficult to undo. And then there were stairs on the outside to get up onto the roof, and they would use the, the roof as kind of a patio or a deck and sit up there in the cool of the evening. We may actually know the exact house where this event took place. I don't know if you can pull up the slide. This is a picture of Capernaum, the ruins of Capernaum. You can see the rock walls in there of where the homes um, were. Um, there is one home in particular that, is, that was of great interest. It was underneath in the, about the 5th century. They discovered as they started uh, digging into the ruins here, they found a church from the 5th century that was kind of built in the shape of an octagon. And they thought that was kind of unusual for that area. So they dug underneath that and they found this home that was very unusual. The walls were all whitewashed, which was not common they were able to discern that, the, that this house had been converted at some time into a meeting place. It wasn't being used as a home anymore. And scratched into the whitewash over a hundred times were little comments, little things about Jesus, uh, worship sayings. And a couple of sayings, they're not positive, but they're a couple of sayings um, that they think may have been linked to Peter. 
Now, in the passage, it says that they went to Jesus and he was at home. As far as we know, Jesus never owned his own home, but Peter and Andrew lived in Capernaum. So it's very likely that they were talking about Peter's house. Archaeologists think it's, it could be. Obviously, we won't know for sure, but this, this location could actually be Peter's home, which would mean this was the actual location that this story took place. Now, that modern building that you see is actually built right over where that 5th century church used to be. It was built in 1990. It's called the Church of St. Peter. And it has a glass floor. So when you go into worship, you can look down right into the location. This, this story may have actually taken place. Imagine if we were listening to this story right now and it being able to look down. I know a group from our church is going to Israel this year. I don't know if Capernaum is on the itinerary, but that would be, uh, that would be a pretty cool thing to be able to see. Anyway, back to our passage. I, like, I love history, so I had to, had to throw that in. I always like to insert myself into these stories. So let's just say we're actually there at that location. We managed to get into the room. We're listening to Jesus teach, and, and throughout Scripture, it talks about how Jesus taught differently, that he spoke with great authority. People were just mesmerized by this. So we're sitting there, we're, we're so fortunate we got into the room, and we're just soaking this in, and then we hear these footsteps on the roof above us. Then it starts getting louder, and we hear this banging noise, and the, the dirt starts to filter down in, in front of us, right? And then the roof gets torn open. The, the Greek word in there for removing the roof is actually unroofed. They actually just took the roof off. Now, sunlight is streaming down in here, and we're, you know, by now, it, the whole thing is disrupted. And then they just kind of, we don't know exactly how they got him down there. I hope it was gently. But they, they put him down there, and you can just look up and see these dirt-streaked faces peering down into this hole, like, like here he is, Jesus. Take care of him. A beautiful thing about this story is that it used the plural when it talked about faith. It says Jesus was moved by their faith. Not the faith of the paralyzed man. The faith of his friends is what brought him to Jesus. It's a beautiful glimpse into what the church is supposed to be. A caring community bringing us to Jesus. I actually thought of our deacons when I was thinking about this. That they do that every single day behind the scenes. Reaching out, taking care of us, comforting us bringing us to the feet of Jesus. Notice also how free of bureaucracy the healing was, right? Jesus didn't ask him to join a class. He didn't ask him to, to agree to a set of doctrines, to jump through any hoops. He saw their very simple faith, and a healing took place. Throughout the Gospels, that's one of the themes I see with Jesus. He really doesn't like being put in a box, when he heals people every time, just about, it was done in a different way. He didn't want there to be some magic formula that people would go through to receive his healings. So Jesus heals them, and the people rejoice. Not all of them, right? It says the scribes weren't too happy about what happened. And now the scribes, they, they got the name originally because, remember, this is before the printing press, so somebody had to hand copy scripture 
from one scroll over to another. The scribes did that. By this point, their role had really evolved, and they were among the learned elite of their culture. They were actually very important, significant people. But they had a vested interest in keeping the status quo. In verse 7, they said, Why does this fellow speak in this way? It is blasphemy. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In the original language, that word fellow is, is um, very much an insult. It's almost like, who does this clown think he is? Right? He's, not, he's not one of us. And it's easy for us to judge them with our hindsight, but the reality is, what Jesus did was really quite radical. Only God could forgive sins. Within this culture, the great high priest could proclaim forgiveness once a year on the Day of Atonement, but not even the promised Messiah could forgive sins based on his own authority. Jesus was making a radical claim, and it was not well received by the people in authority because they had a vested interest in seeing things going the way it was. Jesus has the authority to both forgive sin and to heal. So what does the story mean for us today? Now, obviously, one of the, the obvious things is this sense of community, that this is what we're called to be. This is the, what we're called to do for each other. But equally important for a healing to take place, you have to be willing to accept it, right? Because I want to be the guy carrying the mat. I don't want to be the guy on the mat, right? I don't want to feel weak. I don't want to feel vulnerable. I don't want to be perceived as being needy. But for healing to take place, you need both of those. And we need that in the church. We need to be that kind of a place where we can do that. But I told you there was something in the story that really bothered me, and it was Jesus' initial response to the paralytic appearing before him. What did he say? Son, your sins are forgiven. Why did he say that? I, I can't help but wonder, did the paralyzed man say, um, great, did you notice I can't walk, right? That's why they brought him there, is so they would walk again. And Jesus' initial response is, your sins are forgiven. It doesn't make sense. And it just seems to perpetuate the false idea that an illness is a, cause of, is a result of sin. But we know Jesus doesn't believe that in, an, in another passage. Where is it? I think it was John 9. They see a, a blind man. And his disciples ask Jesus, whose sin caused his blindness? Was it him or was it his parents? And Jesus said, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. So he, he's not perpetuating that belief. So why? Why was that his response? They were looking for physical healing, but they got spiritual healing as well. I think Jesus started with that because he was showing the primacy of our souls. 
We tend to focus on the physical, the tangible. It makes sense. It's logical, right? This, this is right in front of us. But in our essence of who we really are, we're a soul. And Jesus is just as concerned, probably more concerned about that as he is with these bodies. Um, many of you know that uh, I've been struggling with a mysterious illness for about two and a half years. So this is getting back to being the guy on the mat and being vulnerable and, and talking about these things. Um, and about six months ago, I got uh, a diagnosis finally from a neurologist at UCI. And she told me that I have um, chronic fatigue syndrome, or CFS. Um, and it really hit me hard, which I wasn't expecting, because I was expecting this diagnosis. I'd been to a lot of doctors. Several specialists at UCI told me, in all likelihood, this is going to be what uh, you're going to wind up with. Um, but CFS has no cure. It doesn't even have a treatment. They don't know what causes it. Um, some people gradually get better. For a vast majority of people, it's permanent. Um, fortunately, I had a relatively light case of it. The, the people who have it really bad can't get out of bed for weeks at a time. So this hit me really hard, that, much more so than I expected, like I said. There was another doctor I was going to at that time. Um, for some other issues, and so I went, that, that were related, and so I, I told him about the diagnosis. He had some great advice for me, some of the best advice I've ever received. He said, I get why you want a diagnosis. It makes sense. Because you're not well, you want to identify what's broken, and you want to fix it. Totally makes sense. The problem with that, though, and the problem with this diagnosis is, if you identify with the diagnosis, you're going to think of yourself as a CFS patient. You're going to act like a CFS patient, right? And he said, I'm not saying at all that it's just wishful thinking will make it go away, but it tends where your focus is. If your focus is, I just want to get healthy, recognizing that I'm not there yet, but my focus, how I identify, is going to be with a healthy person, and I've, I'm in this temporary situation where I don't have it. But this is what I love that he said next. And I'm going to be with you every step of the way. I'm not going to give up. That was a great gift. And I think that's what Jesus is saying to us on a spiritual level. We can identify with our sin. We can identify with the places where we feel that we fall short of the calling that Jesus has placed onto our lives. But he comes in and says, you're forgiven. That's who you are. That's how I see you. you, get, you understandably, we see those things where we fall short and we feel bad about them and we want to do something about them. But Jesus says, I see you as a forgiven person, first and foremost. God sees us as his children, co-heirs with Christ. Perfection, works of art, 
Those are the kinds of words we find in Scripture describing us. Jesus had something bigger in mind for this man, the health of his soul. This isn't just a story about healing. It's a story about Jesus expanding our expectations. The men wanted healing and they got forgiveness. The scribes wanted a Messiah that fit neatly within their box that they had defined for them. And instead, they got God incarnate who had a radical plan for how we're to live our lives. So how about your expectations? How big a priority is the health of your soul for you? And if you say it's high, how is that reflected in your actions? Think for just a minute about how much time you spend every day on your physical body. Feeding it, getting enough sleep, and rest, spending time on entertainment, relaxation, medical issues, clothing, grooming and makeup. I can relate, you know, this doesn't just happen, <laughs> right? Be amazed at how much work goes into it. And haircuts at Great Clips aren't free. Let me just tell you that right now. Now, these things in moderation are fine. Right? They're great. They're healthy. Nothing wrong with them. But what if we all took just 5% of the time that we spent on our physical body and we devoted that to our soul? To nurture our soul. To make our souls healthy the way we know God wants them to be. Maybe it's taking some time off. Go off by yourself and just commune with God. Maybe it's joining one of our life groups and getting into some really good conversations. Maybe you've got something in your past that's just really eating away at you. And you really need to experience God's forgiveness. Or maybe you need to forgive someone else because that also eats away at our souls. There's another um, story of healing from Jesus in John chapter 5, another paralyzed man at the pool of Bethesda. Jesus asks him an interesting question that I think is really pertinent to this story and to what we're talking about right now. He says to him, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? I think it's a question for us today, isn't it? Do we, do we want our souls to be well? And if so, what are we doing about it? What's coming between you and the healing of your soul that Jesus has for you? Is it something physical, like the house? Going after material stuff, constantly getting that, that need to get more stuff? Is it the crowd the expectations of other people on us? Here's one. Is it your religion? Is it your reluctance to leave what's comfortable? 
even though you know it's not healing you, and you know that Jesus has something deeper for you. It's hard sometimes to get out of our comfort zones. So what is it that's getting between you and the healing that Jesus has for your soul? What is it that you need to tear a hole in to get to Jesus? So that's a question for all of us. Do we want to get well? And are we prepared for Jesus to expand our definition of what wellness really means? Amen. Amen.